0: The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions, that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us, who considers ourselves a spiritual being, truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals, and believe? even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be. My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Everything. Have you ever noticed, the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth but if you have ghosts you have everything Hey you guys welcome back to if you have ghosts you have everything I hadn't initially planned on doing a bonus episode for Valentine's Day, but I personally love Valentine's Day. I love the fact that for me, I see it as the beginning of spring. Usually by this time of the year, I'm boiling maple syrup and or maple sap into syrup. I'm starting to see the robins return as well as the woodpeckers and the cardinals, etc. here to southern Indiana. And in general, you're starting to see some greenery pop up in the yard and in the woods. So I've always associated mid-February with the coming of spring. So I wanted to sort of dive into the history of Valentine's Day and see what it might be able to tell us about my feelings on the subject as well as how it compares to what Hallmark would like us to feel about the subject. That being said, tonight we're going to start the episode off with a short little segment from Penny Marie Bishop. We're here with Miss Penny Marie Bishop in the tiny bedroom studio For this bonus episode of, can you say it?
1: If you have ghosts, you have everything.
0: Sit down over there and focus. Come on now. All right? You got to be a professional broadcaster (laughs) in this situation, all right? Since you're famous. Anyways, Penny, this episode is all about the history of Valentine's Day, okay? And no episode about any holiday that we celebrate would be complete if I did not have... Your perspective, because you are the future of both me and your mother and your family, okay? So tell me what you know about Valentine's Day.
1: Well, I know for sure. The love of Valentine's Day is from the Valentine's Day Cupid.
0: Oh, Cupid, huh? And what does Cupid do?
1: He helps everybody seek a gifts. Yeah? The Valentine's Day Cupid is the result of, of the heart arrow.
0: Oh, yeah? Does Cupid shoot people with arrows and make them fall in love? Yes. Yes. Is that what he does? Yes. Do you think he's always doing that out of the kindness of his heart to make you find true love, or sometimes is he a little bit more mischievous? He's not like an elf. You don't think he's like an elf? You don't think he's mischievous? Heck no! No. So, what's your favorite part of Valentine's Day? Candy. Candy. What kind of candy is your favorite Valentine's candy?
1: Chocolate and suckers.
0: What kind of chocolate? Any kind in particular? Carmel. Yeah? What about those little Valentine's Day hearts? Do you like those? You mean... The little candy hearts? You
1: mean the ones that... That,
0: that say stuff on them like I love you or be mine?
1: You mean the ones that are super sour?
0: Uh, they're not really super sour, but they're kind of chalky. Mean the
1: ones, you mean the ones that Mabel got me? Yes. Oh, uh, Yeah!
0: <laughs> you don't have to yell on the mic, okay? Well, let me ask you another question. So you're almost eight years old now, right? Yeah. Do you have a Valentine? You don't have to say who it is, but do you have a Valentine, yes or no? Yes. You do. Are you excited? Yes. Yes. Are you excited to celebrate Valentine's Day at school? Yeah. What do you guys do? Do you guys give cards?
1: Yeah. And what? we give each other candies, and we make bags.
0: Yeah. What kind of What kind of cards did you get this year?
1: Oh. Um spirit, and one more thing.
0: Okay, tell us.
1: I just want to spend my Valentine's Day with my Valentine.
0: What about me? Can I be your Valentine? You spend your day with me?
1: Yeah, after I get home from school, I also have a Valentine at school.
0: Alright, Penny. You got anything else you want to tell people?
1: Be happy.
0: Can you tell them to have a happy Valentine's Day?
1: Have a happy Valentine's Day and remember, if you have kids, don't let them spin up on you. (laughs)
0: All right, thank you, Penny Marie. There you have it, from the mouths of babes. That being said, set back, relax, and enjoy this special Valentine's Day episode of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. To truly understand this festive day of love and affection, Amongst would be quarters, we must first understand the roots that still feed the tree of 3 by 4 inch perforated cut out Disney inspired cards, cheap chocolates, and a financial boon for the Hallmark company. As usual, we must first turn back the clock to the Romans and an early festival held mid February with some surprising, if not scandalous, rituals intended to woo if not the heart of a lover, then the social status and reproduction instincts. Lupercalia was an ancient pre-Roman festival dedicated to the god Faunus, as well as his cohort Fauna. To boot, the festival also celebrated the founders of Rome, Remus and Romulus, and the she-wolf who raised them. The Lupercalia itself is derived from the word lupus, meaning wolf. The festival was celebrated from February 13th until February 15th as a fertility celebration, complete with all manner of antique hedonism. Some of the debauchery included the sacrifice of animals, primarily goats and dogs, from which strips of hide were removed by the priests, known as the luperci, who dipped the hides into blood and would run the streets naked, lightly slapping the eager women with the blood-soaked rags To quote-unquote promote fertility women's names were written down and added into an urn whereupon the men would draw a name in a lottery system to pair them with a mate the idea being that the two potential lovers were bound to one another for a period of one year with the intended result being marriage it's important here to realize that people did not always associate love with marriage in roman society as often marriages were more of a helpmate situation, if they were not otherwise arranged. Having both love and marriage was considered quite lucky at the time. Here, so many Romeo and Juliet tales have been left to the ash heap of history, but the idea itself is still as relative as ever. It was touched on in a poem by Catalyst, where he reflects on his hopes to unite with his preferred lover, who is also unhappy in her marriage. The concept of courtly love is a very modern one indeed. The festival was associated with the return of the spring birds as the beginning of spring. Fertility and the mating season. This was touched upon in later English history by the great poet Geoffrey Chaucer in 1382 in the Parliament of the Fowls where he wrote, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl comes there, his mate to take. Of every species that men know I say, And then so huge a crowd, they did make. Even our concept of Cupid is Roman in nature. Cupid himself a demigod, the love child of the God of War Mars and the love goddess Venus. The bow and arrow he carried and used to induce love and lust, often in nefarious ways, as he sometimes shoots someone with no chance of finding love with their desired partner And watches as the poor fool wastes his life trying to woo his lover. Venus herself often reprimanding him. Lucky for us, karma is part of his tale. As in the story of Cupid and Psyche, Cupid falls to his own machinations when he accidentally shoots himself and falls hopelessly in love with Psyche. A beauty so radiantly fair that no suitor seemed worthy of her. Of course, no discussion of St. Valentine's Day history would be complete without touching on the Catholic saint himself. But who was he? Or maybe, more importantly, which of three St. Valentines, all executed on February 14th in differing years, was the real St. Valentine? Or were there ever even really three? The first was St. Valentine of Tenny, the Bishop of Interna. The second was a priest, and a third was executed in the Roman province of Africa, and of whom nothing much is known. During the time of Valentine of Tenny, the emperor Claudius was waging a very protracted war and was often absent his throne. During this tumultuous time, he decided to outlaw marriages, as young married men were much more unlikely to join his empirical crusade. Tinny being a bishop in pre-Christian Rome, realized the holy sanctity of marriage, and would perform marriages for young lovers in secret and quite illegally. It is said that he wore a silver ring with Cupid engraved on it and encrusted with amethyst as a way to signal to young lovers his willingness to perform the wedding ceremony in secret. It's also claimed that Tinny was helping fugitive Christians escape Roman prisons. Either way, he was arrested, and as the story goes, Claudius offered him a pardon if Tenny would only reject Christ and his salvation, which he refused to do. So it goes that Tenny fell in love with a young woman who he had been tutoring and before being sentenced to death via beheading, he wrote her a love note, signed, Your Valentine. To bring the two separate but culturally and geographically related sides of the holiday together, the Lupercalia festival was outlawed by the 5th century pope Gexius, who then dedicated February 14th as the feast of St. Valentine's Day as a Christian replacement of the pagan holiday. The church removed the feast from the official calendar in the late 1960s, giving us the remnants of a consumer driven merchandise festival that we see today. Relics of St. Valentine's exist yet to this day. His skull, for example, crowned with flowers, is on exhibit in the Basilica of Santa Maria and Cosmodine Rome for all to see. Hey guys, Alan Bishop here, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest, co-host of Distillers Talk, host of the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Are you interested in the distillation of homemade spirits? We're not here to talk about the legality of that or any of the gray area. What we are here to talk about, however, is the fact that the next wave of craft distillers is made up of people like you. That's right. Home distillers that are pushing the envelope with very unique recipes, very unique processes and regionally appropriate spirits. So. If this is something that interests you, I've got something that I think you'll want to check out. My good friend Wayne Herbert at Ozark Steelworks. Wayne himself is a home distiller, and he's designed some very unique, very cool distillation process equipment it's all modular with tricloves etc and you can switch it out onto any kind of boiler that has a triclove or is triclove adaptable two unique pieces of equipment that wayne has already designed that i am in the process of reviewing for the one piece of the time distilling institute are first and foremost the appropriately named shocker This is an external coil deflamator, so as opposed to a shotgun style deflamator, the coil on this is on the outside. It can be a 2 inch or a 3 inch model, and believe it or not, in the experiments we've already tried, even without packing or plates, you can reach proofs of 170 proof on a single pass distillation. That's pretty damn impressive. It also looks steampunk as shit. The next piece of equipment that Wayne's already got on hand, and these are ready for sale, or they can be in short order, is what we're currently calling the Mr. Fusion, in a nod to Back to the Future. The Mr. Fusion is a pot-still style head. It's not quite an onion shape. It's more of a diamond. It's a beautiful piece of equipment that you'll be seeing a lot on the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute. The head itself is worthwhile for pot still distillation. But inside that head is also a small deflamator for either single-pass distillation and or plated distillation and or just raising your proof in your purity. Listen, Wayne's got other stuff in the works too, including an inline, reloadable, bypassable, high-efficiency, small-scale thumper, unlike anything currently out there on the market. The other cool thing about Wayne is he is not afraid to answer your questions about distillation, and nor is he afraid to tackle a new project. If you have an idea for a piece of equipment, that does not exist out there on the market Wayne has the fabrication skills as well as the backup with my testing at the One Piece of a Time Distilling Institute to design whatever you might have in mind if this interests you then check out Ozark Steelworks on Facebook or drop Wayne a line at OzarkSteelworks at gmail.com tell him that Alan Bishop sent you over In ancient Roman religion and myth, Faunus was the rustic god of the forest, plains, and fields. When he made cattle fertile, he was called Enus. He came to be equated in literature with the Greek god Pan, after which Romans depicted him as a horned god. Faunus was one of the oldest Roman deities. According to the epic poet Virgil, he was a legendary king of the Latins. His shade was consulted as a goddess of prophecy under the name of Fatus, with oracles, in the sacred grove of Tiber, around the well Abonia, and on the Aventine hill in ancient Rome itself. Marcus Terentius Varro asserted that the oracular responses were given in Saturnian verse. Faunus revealed the future in dreams and voices that were communicated to those who came to sleep in his precincts, lying on the fleeces of sacrificed lambs. Fowler suggested that Faunus is identical with Favonius, one of the Roman wind gods. Faunus may be of Indo-European origin and related to the Vedic god Rudra. It's believed that he was worshipped by traditional Roman farmers before becoming a nature deity. Lupercus was a god in Roman mythology, a protector of farmers, harvesting, and packs of wild animals. He was an ancient Italian god worshiped by shepherds as the promoter of fertility in sheep and the protector of flocks. He helped the she-wolf to take care of Romulus and Remus. This is why the Lupercalia was a celebration that helped pregnant women. Lupercus has sometimes identified himself with the god Pan in Greek mythology. The Roman god Faunus is a variation of Lupercus and also linked to the festival of Lupercalia. In the Roman foundation myth, it was a she-wolf, Lupa in Italian, that nursed and sheltered the twins Romulus and Remus, after they were abandoned in the wild by order of King Emilius of Alba Longa. She cared for the infants at her den, a cave known as the Lupercal, until they were discovered by a shepherd, Faustulus. Romulus would later become the founder and first king of Rome. The image of the she-wolf suckling the twins has been a symbol of Rome since ancient times and is one of the most recognizable icons of ancient mythology. There is evidence that the wolf had a special place in the world of the ancient peoples of Italy. One legend claims that the Herpini people were so called because when they set out to find their first colony, they were led to its location by a wolf. The tale of the Lupercal is central to that of the twins, and probably predates theirs. To the Roman god Mars, the wolf is a sacred animal. There is an ongoing debate about a connection to the ancient Roman festival of the Lupercalia. In Greek mythology, Apollo's mother Leto is reported to have given birth to him as a she-wolf to evade Hera. Romulus and Remus were born, and Alba Longa one of the many ancient Latin cities near the future site of Rome. Their mother, Ray Silvia, was a Vestal virgin and a daughter of the former king Numator, who had been displaced by his brother, Amulius. In some sources, Ray Silvia conceived them with her father, the god Mars, when he visited her in a sacred grove dedicated to him. Seeing them as a possible threat to his rule, King Amulius ordered them to be killed, and they were abandoned on the bank of the river Tiber to die. They were saved by the god Tibernius, father of the river, and survived with the care of others at the site of what would eventually become Rome. In the most well-known episode, the twins were suckled by a she-wolf in a cave known as the Lupercal. Eventually, they were adopted by Faustolius, a shepherd. They grew up tending flocks unaware of their true identities, Over time, they became natural leaders and attracted a company of supporters from the community. When they were young adults, they became involved in a dispute between supporters of Numitor and Amulius. As a result, Remus was taken prisoner and brought to Alba Longa. Both his grandfather and the king suspected his true identity. Romulus, meanwhile, had organized an effort to free his brother and set out with help for the city. During this time, they learned of their past and joined forces with their grandfather to restore him to the throne. Amulius was killed and Numitor was reinstated as king of Alba. The twins set out to build a city of their own. After arriving back in the area of the Seven Hills, they disagreed about the hill upon which to build. Romulus preferred the Palatine Hill above the Lupercal. Remus preferred the Aventine Hill when they could not resolve the dispute, they agreed to seek the gods' approval through a contest. Remus first saw six auspicious birds, but soon afterwards, Romulus saw twelve, and claimed to have won divine approval. They disputed the result. Remus insulted Romulus's new city and was killed, either by Romulus or by one of his supporters. Romulus then went on to found the city of Rome, its institutions, government, military, and religious traditions. He reigned for many years as its first king. No love story would be complete without a little darkness for texture. At 10:30 in the morning on St. Valentine's Day, Thursday, February 14th, 1929, seven men were murdered at the garage at 2122 North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago's North Side. They were shot by four men using weapons that included two Thompson submachine guns. Two of the shooters were wearing police uniforms, while the others wore suits, ties, overcoats and hats. Witnesses saw the men in police uniforms leading the other men at gunpoint out of the garage after the shooting. The victims included five members of George Bugs Moran's Northside gang. Moran's second-in-command and brother-in-law was killed along with Adam Heyer, the gang's bookkeeper and business manager, Albert Wineshank who managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran and gang enforcers Frank Gussenberg and Peter Gussenberg. Two associates were also shot, Reinhardt H. Schweimer, a former optician turned gambler and gang associate, and John May, an occasional mechanic for the Moran gang. Chicago police officers arrived at the scene to find that victim Frank Gussenberg was still alive despite having sustained 14 bullet wounds. He was taken to the hospital where doctors stabilized him for a short time and police tried to question him. When the police asked him who did it, he reportedly replied, No one shot me. He died three hours later. The massacre was an attempt to eliminate Bugs Moran, head of the Northside gang. Al Capone, who was at his Florida home at the time, was widely assumed to have been responsible for ordering the massacre. The impetus for the plan, May have been the Northside gang's hijacking of some expensive whiskey being illegally smuggled by Capone's gang from Canada via the Detroit River. Moran was the last survivor of the Northside gunman. His succession had come about because his similarly aggressive predecessors, Jaime Wise and Vincent Drushy, had been killed in the violence that followed the murder of their original leader, Dean O'Banion. Several factors contributed to the timing of the plan to kill Moran. Moran and Capone had been vying for control of the lucrative Chicago bootlegging trade. Moran had also been muscling in on a Capone-run dog track in the Chicago suburbs, and he had taken over several saloons that were run by Capone, insisting that they were in his territory. Earlier in the year, North Northsider Frank Gusenberg and his brother Peter unsuccessfully attempted to murder Jack McGurn. The Side gang was complicit in the murders. Pasqualano Patsy Lolordo and Antonio the Scourge Lombardo. Both had been presidents of the Siciliana Union, the local mafia, and close associates of Capone. The plan was to lure Moran to the SMC cartage warehouse on North Clark Street on February 14th to kill him and perhaps two or three of his lieutenants. It is usually assumed that the North Siders were lured to the garage with the promise of a stolen. Cut-rate shipment of whiskey supplied by Detroit's Purple Gang, which was associated with Capone. The Goosenberg brothers were supposed to drive two empty trucks to Detroit that day to pick up two loads of stolen Canadian whiskey. All the victims were dressed in their best clothes, with the exception of John May, as was customary for the Northsiders and other gangsters at the time. Most of the Moran gang arrived at the warehouse by approximately 10:30 a.m., but Moran was not there, having left his Parkway Hotel apartment late. He and fellow gang member, Ted Newberry, were approaching the rear of the warehouse from a side street when they saw a police car nearing the building. They immediately turned and retraced their steps, going to a nearby coffee shop. They encountered gang member Henry Gusenberg on the street and warned him. So he too turned back. Northside gang member Willie Marks also spotted the police car on his way to the garage and ducked into a doorway and jotted down the license number before leaving the neighborhood. Capone's lookouts likely mistook one of Moran's men, probably probably Albert Weinshank, who was the same height and build for Moran himself. The physical similarity between the two men was enhanced by their dress that morning. Both happened to be wearing the same color overcoats and hats. Witnesses outside the garage saw a Cadillac sedan pull up to a stop in front of the garage. Four men emerged and walked inside, two of them dressed in police uniform. The two fake police officers carried shotguns and entered the rear portion of the garage, where they found members of Moran's gang and associates Reinhard Schweimer and John May, who was fixing one of the trucks. The fake policeman then ordered the men to line up against the wall, then signaled to the pair in civilian clothes who had accompanied them. Two of the killers opened fire with Thompson's submachine guns, one with a 20 round box magazine and the other a 50-round drum. They were thorough, spraying their victims left and right, even continuing to fire after all seven had hit the floor. Two shotgun blasts afterwards all but obliterated the faces of John May and James Clark, according to the coroner's reports. To give the appearance that everything was under control, the men in street clothes came out with their hands up, prodded by the two uniformed policemen. Inside the garage, the only survivors in the warehouse were May's dog, Highball, and Frank Gussenberg. Despite 14 bullet wounds, he was still conscious, but he died three hours later, refusing to identify the killers. How about a haunting associated with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? Today, the old garage is a parking lot. As the garage was torn down in 1967, the lot is prime real estate, but the city of Chicago has decided that nothing will ever be built in its footprint in order to pay respect to the tragedy. The bricks the men were lined up against were recovered and actually used for a recreation of the wall in a bar bathroom in Canada by George Peaty, After a short run, the bar went bankrupt and the various bricks were sold and auctioned off to several bidders. 414 total bricks ended up in private hands. They are to this day considered cursed as a long history of the various owners dying in car crashes, criminal related events, and even suffering with extremely rare diseases exists. Today, 300 bricks are on display at the Las Vegas Crime Museum, where the caretakers still claim to hear gunshots, the sounds of men moaning, and a sound of bodies falling to the ground. The apartments that were attached to the parking garage are notoriously haunted by poltergeist-like activity, as well with tenants claiming that they hear screams, muffled gunshots, experience electronic interference, and more. The parking lot itself is notorious for otherwise well-trained dogs stopping on walks and barking uncontrollably. As further evidence that love hurts on Valentine's Day, I have one more short anecdote for you. Have you ever wondered why our beloved Pepe Le Pew of Looney Tunes fame is a skunk obsessed with love as opposed to any other animal? It is in fact more than incidental comedy, which is now considered quote-unquote problematic by the woke crowd. Peppy is in fact a skunk, because skunk breeding season begins in mid-February, when the otherwise solitary creature searches out a mate. This is evidenced by the amount of species-specific roadkill in the Midwest at this time of year. Proof that love does hurt. Happy Valentine's Day, guys. We love you, and we'll catch you soon.